It's so good to worship together this morning. We had a <clears throat> membership class yesterday, and I was saying that when I had emailed out and said, you know, we hope everyone can make it, whatever, I was this close to putting in a comment about the warmth of Christian fellowship, and then I decided, you know what, I think I'll leave that one alone. But we are glad you're here, and we hope you experience that as the body of Christ together this morning. So we are six weeks into the new year, and this is your six-week checkup as to how you're doing with your Bible reading plans. If you remember at the beginning of the year, we had a whole bunch available, and I just want to encourage you um, to prioritize that time in God's Word, whatever that looks like. Some people read the Bible in a year, some people do the New Testament in a year, or Bible in six months, or whatever, whatever your regular encounter with God's Word is, I want to encourage you as your pastor to keep that up. It is so worth it. It is the way that we hear from God. It's the way we find out who he is, who we are, what our responsibility is in that, and it's, it's just so important. One of the things that you'll see as you read through the Bible is that you will see that the entirety of Scripture speaks to every circumstance and situation that we find ourselves in. Another way to say this would be to say that the Bible is sufficient. It is enough. God's Word contains in it everything we need to live a life of obedience, faithfulness, to grow in our walk with the Lord. And so as we get into this year, as we think about the situations that are around us, I just want to ask, do you believe that the Bible is sufficient? Do you believe that in the pages of Scripture that God has preserved for us, you can look here and find what you need to live a life of obedience? Now, I don't mean that there's a verse for every particular situation that we come up against in our lives. Right? The, the pastor who married Tiff and I, you, many of you know, knew Bill Arendt. He used to say, the Bible isn't so much a book of do's and don'ts, it's a book of great principle." So it's not that when I say the Bible is sufficient, I mean that you can turn and find a verse that says, here's what you're supposed to do when your neighbor lets his dog go to the bathroom in your yard. What I mean is that the Bible contains principles for us to govern our lives, to see what God desires of us, and to respond accordingly. One of the ways that you can gauge how you think about the sufficiency of the Scripture is to look at situations and events that happen around us and try to see how do you respond to those. Is your first impulse to look at what happened and try to find an answer in God's word? To think back over to your time and study and say, okay, I know the Bible speaks to this. What can I do? Well, how can I find out? Because I'm afraid that sometimes as Christians we, we say, well, of course, the Bible is sufficient. It tells me about salvation. It tells me about God. But what about the other things in our lives? What about the struggles you have in employment? What about relational things? What about civic engagement? What about how to respond to authority? What about those kinds of things? Do we trust that the Bible is sufficient to speak to those, or do we kind of relegate that to other disciplines like science or education or sociology? Now, don't get me wrong. All of those can be beneficial. Think of the things that we know because of scientific endeavor. But I want to be careful that as Christians, you and I don't start to think, 
okay, the Bible tells me about God, but I need to go somewhere else to find out how to handle my marriage. I need to go somewhere else to find out what do I do with all this tension in the world around me. The disciplines only go so far. They are not sufficient. Education is important. Sociology helps us understand how things relate to one another, but they are not the Bible. We need God's word, and this is why I just want to encourage you as you're going through the year, as you're intentionally interacting with God's word, look, look for the ways in which the Bible speaks to these things. One of these things that we can look and find in the Bible is what we're going to cover today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We started chapter 2 on the 3rd of January, and now we're going to look at verses 11 to 16 today. And this is an area talking about reconciliation, what God has done in Christ, that I want to be really careful to not immediately go outside of the Bible to say, how do we think about this? But I want to see what God's word says and live our lives in accordance to that. So would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. And that's the section that we're going to focus on this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2, I invite you to follow along as I read verses 11 through 16. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you through the blood of your Son, Jesus, that has brought us near to you. And Lord, as we look now to your word, which we know is true, that we know is perfect, it is not lacking in any area, and yet we are human. We don't have perfect wisdom. We don't have perfect understanding. And so, Lord, I beg you this morning to send your spirit. Would we not look at this text only through our human eyes, but as Paul earlier prayed, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know what your word says. Only you can do this, God. Only you can impress upon us the truth of your word in a way that is helpful and encouraging and challenging. And God, would you do that this morning? Don't let us leave here unchanged. We've had a wonderful time of worship and prayer. And now as we turn to your perfect word, Lord, speak. Speak to us, God, through your word. Don't leave us here alone. We trust that you'll do this, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take this in two different sections this morning. 
And you can probably imagine what's going on here because this is so similar to the first few verses of chapter 2. Paul is repeating himself, and we'll see that in a minute. But first, we're going to look at there's a problem that Paul articulates, specifically related to the Gentiles, and he will come in in verse 13 and start helping us with the solution to that problem. So number one, let's deal first with who the Gentiles were. Paul refers to them as Gentiles in the flesh. So in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, there were the people of God, the Jewish people, and everybody else. Okay, this is kind of the broad category that we look to the word and see this distinction. If you were not a Jewish person, you were a Gentile. It didn't matter if you were Egyptian or an Amalekite or a Philistine or Greek or whatever. If you were not a Jew, you were considered to be a Gentile. So this is kind of the broad distinguishing category. Paul calls them Gentiles in the flesh. Referring, I think given the context here, to the physical act of circumcision, which was part of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. You can read about that in Genesis 17. God says, every male among you will be circumcised as a sign that you belong to me. This was the way of God setting his people apart. So I don't think this passage is meant to give us like a full description of what the significance is of circumcision, or of covenant theology. I think what it's doing is creating a distinction for us to tell between Jews and Gentiles. Okay, So don't get too bogged down with why is he talking about this. This was a way to separate or to distinguish in their time between a Jewish person and a Gentile person. So the Jews who were circumcised because they adhered to the law would look at Gentiles who had not been circumcised and they called them the uncircumcision. Not a very creative name. There's more we could say, but for now I just want you to see that as a distinction between the people of God historically, the Israelites, and everybody else that was in the world at that time. So when Paul says, you Gentiles in the flesh, he's addressing the Gentile believers in and around Ephesus who had converted to Christianity and that was largely what Ephesus was, was Gentile people who had converted to Christianity. And now it should also be noted that historically, and this is going to help when we get into the next part of the chapter here, there was no partnership, or whatever word you want to use, between Jewish people and Gentile people. I mean, they would literally avoid one another as they walked by because they had nothing to do with that. There was no common ground between Jew and Gentile. Everything in the culture separated them from where they went to where they shopped to where they worshipped. Everything was separate, which will be significant when we see that Christ has crossed that divide and brought us together, right? This was illustrated, I think, in the Gospels. You remember John 4? Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Remember this account in John 4? Listen to what happens here. Starting in verse 7, you can write this down if you want to look later. John 4, 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, being a Samaritan woman? And then the text says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
This was the context that they lived in. There was no crossing over. There was no defiling, if you will, of the Jewish people with the Gentile people. This is the reason that the gospel then was so offensive in the first century. Because all of these Jewish people who had converted to Christianity but were still hanging on to part of that old system had a hard time letting go of the fact that, wait a minute though, there's distinctions. There's things that mark us off as different. We don't want to be infiltrated by the icky Gentiles that eat pork. And yet the gospel bridges that divide because we are one in Christ. Not only was salvation now for the Jewish people, but it was for anyone who had the faith in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. Someday I'll preach this text. It is, I think, my favorite text in Galatians. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, Gentiles, might have the promised spirit through faith. The gospel says no longer is there a distinction. Faith in Christ has reconciled us together. The gospel is scandalous in some ways. The gospel is offensive in some ways, but the gospel is, for you and I, our only hope. It's the only hope. Now, Paul starts this section, I mentioned a couple minutes ago, in a very similar way to what we've already seen in the beginning of the chapter. Right, you remember in verses 1 through 3, Paul says that we were dead in our sins. He gives this universal indictment of our sinful nature, how we were apart from God and lost. And then in verse 4 he says, but God intervened and did something on our behalf that brought us back into relationship with him. Now, speaking specifically to Gentile Christians, but in a very similar way, he says that you, Gentiles, were apart from Christ, alienated, and then in verse 13, but now... In Christ. So it's a very, very similar structure. And you know, hopefully, that when the Bible repeats things, when it repeats themes, we should really pay attention because that's a tool used by the writers to help us recognize that this is something really important to pay attention to. So I think the first thing we see here is that Paul calls them to remember. It's the very first thing he says. Okay, therefore, remember. Should be familiar. Remember in the Old Testament. All the times that we saw God calling his people to remember. Remember what I've done for you. Remember your former life. Remember what I brought you from and redeemed you from. And I think Paul in Ephesians 2 is doing something really similar. He's calling the Gentile believers to remember where they were apart from Christ. Look at verse 12 with me in your Bible, please. Remember that you at that time were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is one of the most sobering verses in the Bible to me. It paints this bleak and awful picture of where people are apart from Christ. There's no hope. 
You notice anything when you read verse 12? What does that sound like? I think this is basically a description of hell. Separated from Christ, unable to benefit from the covenants of promise, without God, without hope. That's what hell will be. Paul is saying that even while alive, if a person is apart from Christ, they are in a kind of hell. We need to be rescued from it. And we just saw at the end of our last section that that rescue comes in the form of the blood of Jesus that redeems us and reconciles us. The Gentiles were apart from Christ. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They were not Jewish. They hadn't grown up with the Torah being read and memorized. They didn't know the song book of Israel, which we would call the book of Psalms. They hadn't been exposed to this kind of teaching. They didn't know that God had promised redemption through his covenants. You remember the covenants made with Adam at creation, with Noah after the flood, with Abraham, with David? They didn't know any of that, and frankly, they probably didn't care. At that time. This is the problem. I think Paul is painting this problem. These these Gentiles in the flesh, which most of us probably are, were apart from Christ, unable to participate in the blessing. So we need we need an answer to this problem. We need a solution to this. And here's where verse 13, I think, is one of the central verses in this section. Follow along. Let's see now the solution that is provided. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the central message of the gospel, that those of us who were far away from God, who we can be brought near, we're miles, miles away, not even on the radar often. But because of Jesus and because of his life and his death, and his resurrection from the dead, we can now participate in these blessings. I want you to think about this bringing near. Do you see this language in verse 13? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. I want you to think about that in two different ways. First, think about it in terms of temple language. Okay, think about it in terms of temple language. If you lived in that time, you were at least aware there was temples everywhere, you knew kind of the way they were set up, but for Israel, for the Jewish people, the temple was set up according to God's mandate, and it was very specific. So the temple had different areas, different courts that were kind of boundaries for who could get so far. At the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. This is where the high priest went once a year to offer atonement for the people. No one else could go in that area. That was where the very presence of God was. Next, just outside of that, was the inner court. The people of Israel could come into that place to bring their sacrifice, to pray, and to wait for their sacrifice to be offered and then receive a blessing from the priest. Outside of that was the outer court or the court of women. This is where women could come and worship They could not go past that point unless they were bringing a sacrifice with them. Outside of that was the last 
area of the temple, and it was the court of the Gentiles. This is where converts to Christianity could come that far, but no further, because they were still considered to be Gentiles, separated, kind of held at arm's length. So when Paul says that the Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near, think about this in terms of how the temple even was laid out, that now there was no gate between, there was no wall that was set up to keep them from coming into the presence of God, but that had been, Paul says, broken down. And now those who were once far off, kind of looking through and trying to see what was going on, can enter in by the blood of Christ. That's the bringing near. Think about this also in terms of a global ingathering. Think about this in terms of a global ingathering. Isaiah 43 and verse 6 says this. This is God speaking. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed. God is gathering a people for himself. We see this at the end of the book. When we get to Revelation and there's multitudes that no one can number. And it's not just ethnically Jewish people. It is people from what? Every tribe and nation and tongue and people group. Because it's no longer the external things that qualify you to access to God. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone and by the blood of his new covenant. Those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. I want you to remember this today, especially when we come to the table. When we hold the cup and say, this is the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood, you realize the significance of that. You realize what's being symbolized in that act is that everything that was once required, everything that was once demanded, Christ fulfilled. The reason we celebrate every time we are together is because we need that reminder, brothers and sisters. We need to remember that it is no longer about what we are able to perform. It's no longer about what you do to your body. It's no longer about what group you are associated with. But in Christ, we all, every one of us, have access to God. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table. So remember that this morning, in a few minutes, that we are brought near through the blood of Christ. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table. Now let's look at the next set of verses, 14 through 16. Would you read this along with me? 14 to 16 of chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You remember what I said at the beginning here just a few minutes ago, that as Christians we ought to be careful not to just accept how the world thinks about different issues, how the world tries to understand what's going on, but we ought to use the Bible as our foundation, the Bible as our rule and our guide. 
I think there's always been this kind of tension in our world with some of these issues, but this past year seems to have really brought to the surface a lot of things, hasn't it? And you can't turn on the news or open a web browser or anything without seeing some kind of, someone wants you to be mad about something. <laughs> you know, there's, there's always something to be mad at. This is why we need to use the Bible as our gauge and not just listen to the voices that are coming in. And one of the really prominent discussions and issues that has come up has been revolving around what people call race. And I don't even know if that's the right word to use because the Bible says that we are all one race. It's Adam's race. Now there are certainly different ethnicities, different people groups. The Bible affirms this by using the phrase panta to ethne, which means families of the earth. There are different ethnic expressions, but we are all one race. But you know what I mean when I say that. That's the way our culture uses that word, referring to ethnic lines. One thing I want us to see here is that this text speaks about what we would call racial reconciliation, but primarily it speaks about reconciliation with God. And we're going to talk about this more in a couple minutes, that we need to get that order right. One of those things has to happen before it's even possible for the other thing to happen. So first let's see that Jesus is our peace. See that in the beginning of verse 14. Not only does Jesus offer peace to us and say, well, it's available, or kind of bring it with him, but the Bible says he is himself our peace. And I think about Jesus standing in the boat with the disciples and the storm is going crazy and they're losing their minds. And what does Jesus do? He says, peace, be still. And the storm calms. That's the peace that Christ is and the peace that he offers. His very presence brings us peace, which is another reason why it's so significant that we've been brought near. Because not only now do we kind of look through and see, boy, it looks way less tumultuous in there. It must be something going on. We can go right in there. We can be in with him. We've been brought near by the blood of Jesus and therefore the fact that he is our peace, we now totally benefit from. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that Jesus gives himself to us to be our peace? Jesus is our peace, but what has he done? Well, look at the text again. He has made us both one, us being Jew and Gentile in this context, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice in verse 14, the work of reconciliation has been done. Right? For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. If we're looking for a solution, if we look around us and see that things seem to be a little bit off kilter, look to Jesus, the one who truly brings peace. The one who truly is peace. I mean, everyone's looking for answers. The world is looking for answers, right? They see things that are, um, whether 
true or untrue. It's the way you view some things and they see things and they're looking for a reason to explain why are things the way they are. Why do things happen the way they happen? And I think that there are many theories and philosophies and ideas floating around to try to answer the question that has been answered in Ephesians 2 already. People are trying to dream up different ways to think about things because I'm not going to the Bible. Don't tell me that that's true. We'll make up our own way to try to get people back together. It's not going to work. There is no lasting peace apart from Christ. God has taken, listen, God has taken the most widespread difference that existed, being between Jew and Gentile, and has bridged that gap through his son, Jesus Christ. If you and I start with the wrong place, if we start by saying, you know what, all the world needs is we need to get together, we need to recognize and embrace differences and just get the race thing right. If we can just get that right, then we can move on from there. That is a lie. The problem in the world is not that we have different colored people. The problem is that we have a sin problem. And that we need to be reconciled first to God And then out of that reconciliation flows all kinds of other horizontal reconciliation. I am not minimizing the fact that there indeed exists problems in our world as it regards racial issues. I am not minimizing that. And as Christians, we should be concerned about that. We should look and think biblically about how to resolve those tensions. But I am here to tell you that there is one way to solve that problem, and it is not through worldly philosophy. Many of you are bumping up against something called critical race theory, which is a way that was developed apart from the gospel to think about racial things, how things work together, what's going on, how can we kind of fix what's going on. And I gotta say, I, as I have looked into this, it is not compatible with the gospel of reconciliation because what it does is points out the problem, but it offers no hope for you and I. That's where we were. You remember just a couple verses earlier? Apart from Christ, without hope in the world. Do you want to go back to that? Do you want to go back to hopelessness? And just say, well, this is the state we're in. I guess there's nothing we can do about it. There is something we can do about it, and it's right here. We can proclaim the gospel of Christ, which says the largest divide on a horizontal level was bridged by Christ, and the divide which was immeasurable between us and God has been bridged between Christ and us. It's so important that we get this right. The reason that I think CRT is dangerous is not because it's trying to figure out a way to think about race. That's a good thing. We need to think about that. That's not why it's dangerous. The reason that I believe it to be not only dangerous but harmful is because it forgets the truth of the gospel.
And if we do that, no matter what, no matter what, whether we're talking about race or we're talking about family relations or we're talking about work things or whatever it is, if we neglect the gospel, we've got it wrong. So don't hear me say these things aren't important. But hear me say very clearly, it has to start with our hearts being reconciled to God before we can expect any kind of horizontal reconciliation. And I think that's what's going on in Ephesians chapter 2. There is no reconciliation between ethnic groups without the reconciliation that comes through Christ. Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 5. I read part of this last week. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the primary reconciliation that needs to happen in our world, in our time, in our town. The primary reconciliation is that between sinful man and holy God. As Christians, we should be screaming a message of reconciliation. The only reason you and I are here today is because God acted and reconciled us to himself through the blood of Christ. Notice in verse 14, Ephesians 2, Jesus is not trying to make us one, he has made us one. I find such great encouragement in this. God doesn't try things. Do you know this? Do you have a category in your mind for this? God does not attempt to do a thing. He either does the thing or he does not do the thing. There is no trying with him. Therefore, when we read that God has made us one through Christ, you can be sure it's done. We're not looking for it or waiting for it. It's here. It has happened. So how did he do it? How did God make us both one, to use the terminology of Ephesians 2? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's kind of a wordy phrase, isn't it? Let's see what that means. I think for Paul, the work of Christ, his living, his dying, his resurrection, marked the end of, of the old system, the old covenant. This is why Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, this is the cup of the what? New covenant. The old way of thinking, the old thing that was established, the covenant that was expressed in ordinances were, don't wear this, don't eat that, trim your beard this way, have your braid be this long, put it on this side of your body, don't touch that, clean after you do this. It was expressed in ordinances meaning it was expressed in the way that you did things. But now, because of Christ and his work, 
No longer could the Jewish person exclude the Gentile person because they didn't meet the requirement expressed in that law. No longer could Gentiles be stiff-armed at the front of the temple and said, you can't allow, you're not allowed in here. You can't come in. Because the blood of Christ removed that barrier. And they were able to be brought near. Christ abolished the old way, not by ignoring it and doing away from it. We read this in Matthew. That he didn't come to abolish and put that away like it never happened. He fulfilled it through his life and his death and his perfect obedience. And now because of that, we have access. All of this was done through Christ that he would make, as Paul says here, one new man in place of the two. One man who is not defined by ethnicity. One man who is not defined by cultural normatives. One who is not defined by the way the world sees you or the world says you are, but a man who is defined by the grace of God. That would have been a pretty good time for an amen, but I know it's cold this morning. As Christians, listen, there is, there is no room for bigotry in our lives. There is no room to look at someone who appears different than we are and say, I don't have to engage them. There's no room for that. Christ has broken down the wall that existed between us and everyone else. He's killed the hostility. Paul said this in Colossians 3, verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, in this new self, there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In other words, you are no longer to define yourself, Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, by your external characteristics. That's what Paul means in Colossians 3. He doesn't mean that once you become a Christian, everything else just gets melded into this big pot of... There are still distinctives. Cultures are distinct. People have different traditions and ways of doing things. That doesn't go away. But as far as our identity in Christ goes, we are not defined by those external things, but we are defined by the grace of God that he has extended to us. Paul says, this is the last thing I want to point out, found in verse 16. Paul says that by reconciling us to God, through the sacrifice on the cross, Jesus has killed the hostility that existed between us. This would be both the hostility between us and God, being sinful people and holy God, and hostility between us and those around us. Did you know that Jesus kills? Do you have ways of thinking about that? That Jesus puts things to death? I mentioned earlier that you can look pretty much anywhere and get mad about something. You can be stirred up pretty quick. And a lot of the things that are going on around us are designed to work you up. Look at that. Look how awful that was. Aren't they nasty for doing that? You should hate them. 
Jesus looks at that kind of hostility and says, I killed it. It's gone because of my sacrifice. How could you and I, after, after receiving the grace of God, being brought into his family, having that huge, immeasurable divide bridged by the sacrifice of Jesus, how could we then turn around and say, mm, I don't know, I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. That hostility that existed because of ethnic divides has been put to death. Don't try to raise it from the dead. Christ kills it. There was a death necessary to bring us to God. There's death necessary to bring us to the place where we can be reconciled with those, and it is the same death. It's all through the sacrifice of Jesus. So let's talk for a moment about what this text means for us. How can we... How are we to understand this in, the, in light of our current situation? Where we're at, what's going on. We want to be informed by the word of God, right? We want to know what the Bible says. So what are we to do with this? There's just one main thing that I want you to come away with today. One main thought, and that's this. True peace only comes through Jesus. True peace only comes through through Jesus. There is no true peace in the systems of the world. There is no true and lasting peace using critical race theory or intersectionality or any other kind of devised way of thinking about this. There's no true peace anywhere other than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The challenge for us, I think, is that we can affirm that but then we need to be so careful that we do not add anything to that claim. Just like with the sufficiency of the Bible, when we say, yes, the Bible is sufficient, we need not add to it. I think in the same way here, if we say there is only peace found in Jesus, we need to be careful not to add anything to that to try to kind of supplement and fill in where we think it might be lacking. The blood of Christ plus anything is a false gospel. Hear that, the blood of Jesus with anything added to it is a false gospel. Christ redeemed us from that. He reconciled us to God and because of that we can be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. True peace only comes through Jesus. Now, I know that many of you are dealing with this. Maybe not in your own personal experience, but workplace, educational systems and structures. The world is pressing us to think a certain way about things. And my encouragement to you is to remember, remember the word of God that Christ has made us one that the only true peace we will find is found in Christ. And that doesn't mean we don't engage in those spheres. That doesn't mean that we say, well, I'm a Christian, I don't have to get involved with that. I'm reconciled to God, what else do I need? You wouldn't do that with another area of your faith, would you? You wouldn't say, well, I've been saved, I'm not going to tell anybody else, I'll just live my life this way and that's it. No, no, we want to share this message of reconciliation with those around us. 
but get the order right. That Christ reconciled us to God through his death and therefore, because of that, we can be reconciled to one another. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, we desire to think clearly about these things. I, I desire, Lord, that your word be the foundation that I stand on, be the authority which is over me, and I want my thoughts, my actions, my attitude to be totally shaped by your word. And I pray that for these brothers and sisters. I pray that your word would take hold in our hearts, Lord, that we would not immediately run to other sources to find answers, but that we would try and study and read and learn what you have to say so that we come to the realization that only true peace will be found in Jesus. Help us, God. Help us with this. Help us to be a light in a dark world. Don't let us be distracted by all of the craziness around us. Help us to keep our minds set on you. We need your help with this, and I pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.